join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter, or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Now it's time for our global politics slots, and I'm delighted to be joined by economics and politics student uh, Thomas Conway. Thomas, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. And uh, good to see you. You're going to talk to us today about the effects of Brexit uh, to uh, begin with. Um, uh, now, you spoke to us about this uh, before, but I suppose the precise relationship between Britain and EU at this stage, it's, it's important to examine that, isn't it? It certainly is, and I suppose we've had a week of somewhat positive developments in yeah. a Brexit sense. There seems have been a little bit of breakthrough on the Northern Ireland Protocol. You know, I was reading Tony Connolly's piece of RTE over the weekend and it does look like there is going to be a little bit of progression there and I think that's probably testament to to both sides, maybe indicative of Rishi Sunak and his his eagerness to get a deal done. But what I want to use this segment to do is to have a look at Britain's future relationship with Europe because we can get very mired in the Northern Ireland Protocol yes. and things like that. But it, it really is very interesting to see what form the relationship will take and how it will evolve over the next decade ago. Yeah. It's 10 years since the former UK Prime Minister, David Cameron, he delivered this audacious speech to... Uh, to, I think, a group of reporters at Bloomberg, and he, he outlined his vision to promote Britain in a reformed version of the EU. Now, we all know how that turned out. It was laden with wistful thinking, the speech, and uh, little of what he envisaged ever materialised. Look, let's... You have to state it honestly. Brexit has damaged Britain. You can you can unearth multiple statistics illustrating it. Yeah, give, give us some of those stats. Yeah, I mean, my, how, how badly damaged? I just is picked Britain out from? my favourite too. The Bank of England estimates that Brexit depressed investment in the UK by almost twenty five percent over the past five wow. years. That is staggering. Another another think tank thinks that uh, the British economy would be around five percent bigger had Britain chosen to remain in the EU. That's significant. Five percent is is a significant contraction. Just, and where politics are concerned, well, I suppose a lot of the events that we've witnessed, all the ructions within the Tory party, have emanated or evolved directly as a result of Brexit. I mean, we've had five Tory prime ministers: Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and now Rishi Sunak. thing about Rishi Sunak, though, is, and I mentioned it there, he's a self-professed Brexiteer. I was listening to Alistair Campbell a little bit yeah. earlier in a different station this morning. He was quite critical of Sunak, but it does appear that he is eager to get a deal done and to move this thing forward. So, mm. And how can that be done? How can that relationship with Europe be healed in some way? I think, essentially, there are three steps to it. Br- Britain has to first normalise ties with Brussels, with with the EU. And Sunak has taken steps towards this. But the Northern Ireland Protocol issue will be crucial in that regard. If they can make a breakthrough on the protocol, it will open up, I think, space for for other issues to be resolved. Hmm. Uh, and for Britain to kind of take a more diplomatic stance with the EU because it has been quite acrimonious. We have the European Research Group in Westminster, uh, you know, fighting hmm. against a lot of the a lot of the uh, the moves towards a softer Brexit, and we do have quite a hard Brexit as it stands. And can, can we just get rid of something that, uh, you know, sometimes people look at it in a very simple way and say, why don't they just rejoin the yeah. union again? That's that's not a, a player. No, here, that, sure that's not. kind of magical thinking yeah. to a certain extent. I think, you know, 
there there isn't support for it amongst the British public. There might have been a few years ago, but I think the fact that Brexit has now happened, people have always have almost moved on and and kind of accepted that reality. Now, what there is support for is a closer relationship with Europe, right. and that speaks to to you know to to this segment. So first, they have to normalise ties. The second is build a solid working relationship. Boris Johnson negotiated the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. That's the post-Brexit EU-UK trade agreement. That will come up for review in 2026. Now, by that time, a Labour government will probably be in power, you would imagine, bar a major reversal of fortunes. So there will be an opportunity to expand and enhance that deal and to to bring the UK closer, not, not to bring them back into the EU, but to bring the UK closer to the EU on a range of issues. The third part, and I think this is the most important part, reimagining the bond between Europe and the UK. Now, towards the latter half of this decade, we're likely to see a significant structural reform of the EU because countries like Ukraine and a couple of the Baltic uh, or the Balkan states will probably come into the fold or certainly they're they're eager to make an entry into the EU. So that will provide a further impetus, I think, for for a different relationship between Britain and Europe to evolve. Now, there are warnings about this. Michel Barnier, who we'll all be familiar with, the former Brexit negotiator, yeah. he's warned of, of not allowing the UK to kind of re-enter the single market through the windows. You know, that's kind of a... Uh, a, a dire warning, really. So he's encouraging Brussels essentially to remain vig- vigilant. But there is a prospect that in the end, the relationship with the UK will be something akin maybe to the EU's relationship with the likes of Norway and Switzerland. So, right. But are you telling me, and particularly saying that you mentioned Michel Barnier, um, is there a kind of a punishment being meted out in some way to the UK for the way they've treated the EU? Is that, is that still oh, there? I, I think that is certainly there. Yeah. I think, you know, they've left the EU now. They chose to leave yeah. by a democratic mandate. You know, they called the vote. It was their fault. And uh, I think the EU diplomats in Brussels are wary of allowing Britain to uh, to extract the benefits, uh, the positive aspects of Europe and take them for themselves. You know, this kind of... Uh, have their cake and eat it. Yes, yes. So an approach similar to that of Norway and Switzerland. It is worth pointing out though, Thomas, I mean, it's it's a very bad thing for us that we're not sitting shoulder to shoulder with the Brits at EU level because they were helpful to us along the way. Oh, certainly. They? Certainly. I mean, we joined we joined the EU in uh, in conjunction with the UK back in 1973. You know, it's the, it's the anniversary of that now. And, I mean, it did provide a vital forum with which uh, Irish and and their government colleagues from the UK could, could collaborate and work on a range of issues. Now, we have revived some other kind of institutions of the Good Friday Agreement in mm. order to do that. But there is no doubt they are a significant loss at the European table. And for all our, you know, for all for the tense relationship we've had with Britain, they are our closest trading partners and that cannot be forgotten. Yeah, it's worth keeping that in mind. All right, to move on to something rather novel today, I, I, I was taken by your headline, Thomas, to infinity and beyond. You're going to talk to us a little bit about satellites and Starlink and the like as well. Yeah, the politics of space or, or astropolitics as, yes. as some people call it. And you know, for years people talk about space and with a degree of kind of wonder and awe and then man landed on the moon in, in 1969 and suddenly it was this massive breakthrough. 
Then, however, things kind of stalled. Yeah. I think the US lost interest. They had beaten the Soviets to the moon in this kind of Cold War Cold War race, and the, the symbolism of that was very important. But since then, uh, there was kind of a reduction in, in activity. Now, however, a new space race has essentially been ignited, but it's not about the moon. This time, the area that countries are interested in is much closer to, your, to Earth. It's kind of that uh, low Earth orbit is how I've heard it described in my research. And that is because that is where most of the world's satellites uh, currently currently exist. So who is the man behind most of this? Well, people can probably guess it. It's Elon Musk. Mr. Musk. Mr. Yeah. Mr. Musk. And mm. it is his company. A couple of years ago, he established SpaceX, which was his own company, established essentially with the goal of enabling the colonization of Mars. Now, that's... That's still a long way off. Look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cod people. He's still a long way away from that. But what it has specialised in this Starlink or this SpaceX company is Starlink, which is a constellation of new satellites uh, floating above the Earth and providing high-speed communications and allowing signals to be transmitted across the planet. So since 2019, the company has been busy constructing this. This constellation, in just three years, it has launched 3,500 satellite Starlink Starlink satellites. It plans to launch launch as many as 40,000. And the thing about it is, it's playing a vital role in Ukraine's war effort. And this is the really interesting part. So earlier on in the conflict, Ukraine asked SpaceX, they asked Elon Musk directly, could they use some of his portable satellite dishes? Now, he was initially reluctant, but he eventually uh, he eventually acquiesced to them and allowed them to do so. And they've been using it for all types of activities. Now, of course, there's a good reason for this as well, because, I mean, it's not just Elon Musk, is it? Uh, the American government is behind some of this as well. The American government is behind yeah. it, it. allied very closely with Musk's company and, you know, giving him an awful lot of funding. So SpaceX may be a private company, but... You know, in a, thought of in another context, it's probably, it, it's the US, essentially. Mm. I mean, it receives funding from NASA. Uh, they they cross-collaborate in terms of research. So they have this network of satellites there. It's playing a vital role in the war in Ukraine. And it's hugely sophisticated. It's almost impossible to disrupt, Fran. You see, the dishes are light in weight and they can be replaced at lightning quick speed. Right, so if, if, if uh, a military organisation takes out a satellite or a group of satellites, they can be replaced very easily. Yeah, they're it? so prolific, they will just launch another. They'll replace wow. a number. So in a short time. In a short, in a short period of time. Now, they're not the only ones. The US isn't the only country which has placed an emphasis on this. China has plans to concert... Uh, to construct a 13,000 dish satellite constellation Russia uh, it's also in the offing they're going to they're going to try and launch a, a, sm- a slightly smaller group of satellites so other countries are awake to this the EU last week launched uh, another space station up in I think it was Finland in the inside the arctic circle Ursula von der Leyen was up there and there is also competition within America and that comes in the form of Jeff Bezos the Amazon owner, he has his own satellite company, Blue Origin, which people may have heard that. So it all points to the fact that space is becoming increasingly important, both from a geopolitical and a commercial perspective. And it's not just satellites, because when we think of space, 
you know, you think of things like high-grade weapons, intercontinental ballistic missiles. We spoke last week about Kim Jong-un. Yeah. When he fires those missiles, that is where they travel. They're travelling slightly above the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, are they that high? I didn't realise In certain cases, they will be that high if they're the most sophisticated type. Now, thankfully, we haven't seen any, you know, real launches. But they are, you know... And then another dimension to this, and I I thought this was very interesting. Planets such as the Moon and other kind of celestial objects like asteroids, they contain or may contain large amounts of precious minerals and rare earth materials. So you think of things like gold and and nickel and iron. If countries were able to use these asteroids to extract the minerals from them, well, we could have all the gold we like, you know, if the supply was there. What what about um, jurisdiction over planets or space or what? what, what, Is it the wild wild frontier? It it is kind of the Wild West. I think there was a lunar treaty established some years ago, uh, which governed kind of the use of the moon. But that is the thing. I think there is a lack or an absence of of regulation governing the type of activities that occur in space. It's the next frontier and we've yet to legislate for it. So that is something that I think countries will be increasingly eager to do. Coming back down to Earth again and starvation once again. South Sudan, uh, Thomas. Yeah, not an easy story to talk about. And and in ways I hate talking about these stories, but I think it's still important to highlight them. So... Again, we're talking about Africa, a continent with such contradictions, land of promise, land of hope, full of kind of economic potential. And then you have this other darker dimension and that is filled with tales of violence and corruption. And I suppose most relevant to this topic, acute food insecurity. So South Sudan, a relatively new country, only established in 2011, has a population of 25 or 12.5 million people. It gained independence from Sudan and it borders the likes of Ethiopia, uh, Kenya, the Central African Republic. Just to give you an idea of the demographic we're talking about, over half of its citizens are under the age of 18. So an incredibly young population. population. Why, Why are they starving, Thomas? Yeah, you see, this is the thing. So it has been mired in conflict since its independence. Like like many uh, newly independent countries, it slid into a state of protracted civil war. And a damning new investigation in recent weeks found that starvation was being used as a weapon of war by government forces in the country. So this firm, a law firm, Global Rights Compliance, revealed that kind of deliberate acts of starvation were being employed by government forces as well as opposition groups. So it made a plea for international intervention and I think that is what is needed here. Uh, The international community needs to recognise the atrocities being perpetrated and bring the perpetrators to justice because unfortunately we've seen this in other African countries, these things will just continue to spiral. Now South Sudan is the 54th country in Africa the 193rd to join uh, the United Nations. Back when it uh, voted for independence, over 98% of the population voted uh, to establish an independent country. So, you know, overwhelming majority in favour of it. But then we had tensions continuing to simmer after that. The president, Keir, fired his entire cabinet, including his vice president, and that followed accusations of a coup d'etat, there were a few months of relative calm and then in December 2013, rather, fighting broke out. Now, a peace deal was eventually signed in 2015, 
but it was kind of more symbolic than anything else because hostilities and violence have consistently plagued the country in the years since. And just to give you an idea of the level of starvation or the level of suffering that is currently going on in the country, more than 70% of the country's population, and that's about 8.4 million people, require humanitarian assistance and that includes 4.5 million children. So, my God. not easy to talk not about, easy at but all. very important to it, highlight. They'd be very unlucky as well in terms of extreme weather conditions. It, that is yeah. the thing. That's yeah. another dimension of this. There have been a lot of kind of natural disasters, excessive rainfall, drought, all these kinds of weather events affecting the country. And that obviously makes agriculture and cultivation difficult. It makes that entire process very difficult. So, right. so is there any is there any hope for South Sudan? Well, look, I think we should always we should always be hopeful. And I think when we look at Af- Africa on a broader level as a continent, there certainly is hope there because it has soaring economic potential. But I think in certain cases, international intervention is critical. And when we talk about things like a UN peacekeeping force should probably be an operation there. Uh, other countries need to lend its support because, you know, it established itself as an independent country. It needs to stabilise itself. And I think yes. if it could, if we could transition properly to a democratic structure, that would help hugely. Are there natural resources that they can... Uh, uh, there are natural uh, resources yeah. in the country, yeah. There are. It does have... It does have deposits of minerals and oil and gas as well, and that is another trend. We see that uh, frequently, prolifically across Africa, whereby country countries do have access to natural resources but fail to tap them. So that is another dimension to this, that if they can utilise and harness their economic potential you know, they could achieve great things. In terms of what to watch out for, um, Ukraine back in the news again uh, this morning and last night in terms of getting help from Germany and and the the UK as well. Yeah, Britain sent, uh, are sending Challenger 2 tanks, which are powerful tanks. Germany last week was mulling a decision over to whether to send similar armoury, Leopard 2 tanks to to Kiev, and I was listening to to Cahill Berry, uh, the independent TD on Morning Ireland this morning. Yes. He suggested that Ireland should be sending more armory to Ukraine. And I think we've reached a critical juncture in this conflict now because I think Ukraine's Ukraine success, and I've kind of said this before, depends on external factors. So it depends on the amount of weaponry it, it receives from the international community. A little bit like South Sudan is depending on will depend probably on international assistance. Ukraine certainly does. So that is critical. It'll be very interesting to see in the next week whether Germany makes that decision to send those tanks to Ukraine. I suspect they will. I suspect they will take their lead from the United States and President Joe Biden. Mm, it's interesting what emerged on national radio this morning, though. I thought that we couldn't send anything that was like lethal force to, to them because of our neutrality. Well, I was under a similar impression, but I suppose Carl Berry's point was that it was almost a, a humanitarian gesture, that it was uh, it would be directed in order to to stabilise the country and to try and achieve peace. So, you know, it's it's... It's a difficult one. It certainly is. Would Very, it breach yeah. our neutrality protocol? Yeah, you, you would suspect it you might. Would, you would imagine so indeed. Relations souring in, is it Sahel? In the Sahel region yeah. of sub-Saharan Africa. The Sahel is the is the region of sub-Saharan Africa. South Sudan would be probably just below it. But countries like Burkina Faso in, and Mali, and they're two countries governed by military dictatorships, 
Last week, Burkina Faso kicked out its UN representative. It also expelled its French ambassador. And both countries are now seeking closer ties with Russia. So this is really worrying. And this points to the increasingly strong hold which Russia have over parts of Africa. We, we've heard about the Wagner Group in recent days in the city of Solidar yes. in Ukraine. They also operate widely in They're the like Sahel. They're like a mercenary group. They're probably. like a mercenary yeah. and they are the most brutal form of mercenary group. They're also operating widely in the Sahel. So it's worrying when you see these African countries moving clo- moving away from the West and moving closer to Russia. It shows that they're not that interested in the war in Ukraine because they have their own problems yes. to contend with. Uh, so watch that space, I would say. All right. What about the markets then uh, to look to? Volatility, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. finally, the, the markets really, they had, a, they had a horrible year in 2020, 2022. I was just looking at some stats. The S&P 500, these is, that's probably the main stock market, fell by 19%. The Nasdaq Composite, 33%. Then you have big companies like uh, Apple lost $846 billion. Amazon, we spoke about Jeff Bezos earlier, $834 lost wow. a billion, billion of losses. So big questions as to, what, as to what 2023 might hold. Will the financial turmoil continue or will the major players kind of rebound like they have done in the past? Now, nobody is certain. I'm certainly not an expert. I'm certainly not certain. But you would hope if global conditions stabilise that the markets would also stabilise because we have to remember a lot of this is affected by the geopolitical climate, by the global political climate. Uh, The markets kind of react to events, uh, to yeah. events in the no, international I was, I was reading this morning, Thomas, that the markets are a bit ahead of the central banks, for example, thinking that inflation will drop considerably. Yeah, it can be. And a, yeah. a, like a lot, a lot of things in the market is guided by expectations. So yes. expectations of what will happen uh, rather than reactionary to a certain extent. So that is a factor there. And certainly we can look to the markets maybe for a future forecast of what is about to happen in in the economic landscape, in the global political landscape. All right, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how that uh, pans out during the year. Thomas, it's always a pleasure. Thanks very pleasure, much. Pleasure, Fran, thank you. Uh, good to see you. That's Thomas Conway, who looks after our global politics slot every single Monday morning. To Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.